abolish psychiatry for a brighter future. We are a group of Marxist feminists and public health scientists examining the power structure of the mental health industry, especially in the United States. Up front, we want to offer a huge trigger warning. This podcast will examine the power structure of the side professions, which we believe is worthy of critique just as much as any other power structure. While we believe that certainly, without a doubt, people have had positive experiences with medications and therapy within this system, we also recognize that modern psychiatry is a political and morally based profession that was founded on pseudoscience and upholds oppressive systems. We offer a critique and examination of the power structure of psychiatry in related fields while upholding the truth of individual experiences with mental health. We believe that we all experience and react to collective trauma under capitalist oppression, and we believe there is a better way to achieve collective mental health than through the present day individualistic mechanisms of psychiatry. That being said, we will touch on various traumas throughout the series and recommend listening to those who are ready to critique and reimagine the mental health industry from a revolutionary perspective. This first episode kicks off a series walking through the textbook Psychiatric Hegemony by Bruce M. Z. Cohen, which is a Marxist theory of mental illness. have a lot of experience with mental health, both caretaking for my mom who has severe mental illness and in my own experience of misdiagnosis. Um, I also have a master's in public health uh, where I focused on psychiatric epidemiology so I can provide some perspective on like some of the terminology related to um, research. Who wants to go next? I can go. Um, my name is Bethany. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I have a similar path with Kali, only more with my dad and that side of the family. Um, although there is a fair amount on my mom's side of the family as well, with like a lot of the men on that side of the family being diagnosed with um, paranoid schizophrenia from a relatively young age and now one of my uncles has been correctly diagnosed as having Lewy body dementia um but he was misdiagnosed for almost 10 years um and then just like the pitfalls and perils of being autistic and not a man in the United States yeah same (laughs) Rune? Um, I'm Rune and I, I use she, they, and I have a long history of interaction with the mental health field. I have a lot of family members who are bipolar or diagnosed as bipolar. I myself have been diagnosed as bipolar. Um, I've done all kinds of things and recently have dealt with a lot of PTSD. Um, and that's really it. I have some background also in psychology and that I studied it a lot in school. Um, my intention was to do philosophy of psychology in part in grad school, but I didn't make it that far. So 
that's where I'm at. Cool. Awesome. So we got two fancy pants here. So um, over the next hour or so, and um, we'll probably condense it a little bit with how the minutes are broken out. But um, if it's cool with everyone, I'll just kind of give a brief overview of each section. This is chapter one of Psych Psychiatric Hegemony, which is a Marxist theory of mental illness um, by Bruce M. Z. Cohen. Um, there is a PDF available online somewhere. <laughs> uh, the book it itself is kind of expensive, um, but I'll just walk through each of the sections and then we can have a little discussion at the end of each one. Um, so in the introduction, uh, Cohen's talking about how um, the culture that we have today um, examines mental health in a way that totally ignores the superstructure of capitalist society, especially from the perspective of Western society in the United States. Um, so it's ignoring the impact that living in this system has on our health and well being and the way we see the world. Um, it's resulting in a epidemic of mental illness. So there are some statistics given in the chapter, but I found a couple updated ones about 1 billion people uh, globally live with mental illness. And that's about 10% or that results in about 10% of Americans in the US diagnosed or receiving um, psychotropic medication. Um, I think I actually found a statistic from 2020 earlier today that was closer to 11% of the population is prescribed antidepressants specifically. Um, and in China, that's about 92 million people. So due to the level of disease burden in society, uh, mental health professionals are really gaining a lot of power and influence because if you think about it, you know, we're interacting with therapists and we are being prescribed this medication and it's altering how we think and interact with the world. Um, the, the nature of mental illness itself is contested. So while there is a broad narrative that is generally agreed upon through sort of manufactured consent in society, um, there is a lot of academic debate, especially globally on mental illness itself. Um, the author repeats throughout this chapter um, fairly frequently that there's no proof of an observable disease state. Um, experts, there's been studies done that, uh, where experts actually couldn't distinguish the mentally ill from the mentally healthy. Um, and the American Psychiatric Association can't even define mental illness. I think uh, uh, he cites that one of the um, directors called it bullshit because there was no actual definition. Um, and I think one thing to keep in mind as we have this discussion and as we read through the book, that this is a critique of the professional power of mental health professionals or side professionals, not of personal experience. So we know that people experience pain and suffering and different symptoms that are then documented and used as justification for diagnoses. And certain people do feel better when they take psychotropic medications and we're not denying that. We're saying that there is a lot of room for critique and skepticism for how this set of 
profession professionals has developed and how that impacts us individually. Um, so moving into sort of discussion on this part or this piece, um, maybe we can start with, uh, what do you all think a mental illness is or how would you define it? So I generally define it as a deviation from what is considered quote unquote the norm um, and like results in you struggling to exist in society. Um, so like just like any of the things, you know, like you have someone that is bipolar that you know, may have like manic episodes where if they were in a more supported society, you know, they could go to family or their community and work through those episodes rather than just having to spiral on their own. Um, but I don't really have a set definition. It's just more of a like feeling. Rune, do you have a definition in your head? Um, mine is probably pretty similar in that I, I think of it as, as something that, that has an impact, um, experience that has an impact on daily living. So I can have depression and I can go on or I can have depression and I can not be able to shower and cook. And um, so, so there are different degrees of, of this feeling that I'm experiencing. Um, and, and I think it's the point where it impacts life that is where we think of it as illness. Um, I'm not Honestly, I'm not sure that I think of it that way anymore, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, that makes so sense. So did you have, so when did you have this like slight change in how you feel about it? I, honestly, I'm thinking about it as I'm reading through this introduction. <laughs> And, and I'm realizing that so much, like I've studied psychology academically and I'm realizing that so much of my views on how everything works come from the field itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was what really, um, whenever I read the chapter on women last year, um, that was what really like, without having it in those kinds of words, that was like what really like had a big um, transformation moment in my head was where I was like, oh, this is, huh. This is all just descriptors for things. It's not actually like a full on um, distinguishable illness or anything it was just like oh well you're doing a thing that we don't like and then here's all the descriptions for it so now it's an illness mm -hmm. yeah and to that effect who benefits from sort of that perception that these 
feelings or these behaviors or the behaviors as a result of how we're feeling and how we're thinking, who benefits from that discourse that um, it's mental illness and, and psychiatric discourse in general? It's mental illness. It's not the system. It's just you. This is all a you problem. It's not the whole broken society of people that don't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Not everybody flailing around going, I'm so lonely. It's kind of like all. Like, all you. Like psychiatry is the embodiment of the gaslighting of capitalism. Like, oh yeah, that's a you problem. It, it has nothing to do with the fact that like you have been struggling to survive while working four jobs and going to school or <laughs> has nothing to do with the fact that your friend just died in a very traumatic way. And we're not going to like tolerate any sort of natural fight or flight responses in your nervous system, you're sick, you know? Right. Or like, um, whenever I was 18, um, I was going to a therapist with my mom because um, I was in family therapy with my mom and my sister. And I wanted to go to, I think the G4 protest in Seattle so it was like one of the very first like G4, G3, whatever summit. Um, but I, I definitely remember it was the one in Seattle in like 2004. Um, and the therapist just decided that I had oppositional defiance disorder because I was no longer in alignment with my family politically, religiously, like anything. Um, and then whenever I said that I wanted to go to this, he was like, oh, well, you know what? <laughs> She just has oppositional defiance disorder. And I just remember sitting there just like totally just like awestruck. Like how, how, how so because I, ha, I think differently, I now am just being defiant for no reason. Like, thank God he didn't put, put that in my record because I can only imagine what, kind of struggles I would have gone through if that had been like in my medical record yeah and it keeps you like thinking too like oh there's something wrong with me now I have to go to the therapist and spend all this time working on it I have to go to treatment spend a bunch of money on that like I have to take these medications that are going to make me feel like shit and then what are you doing instead you're individualizing your problem and overthinking it instead of actually fighting what the problem is with other people experiencing the problem not to say that you're not having a problem but it does keep you focused on you as an individual versus the system so what I've started doing with my therapist is like I'm just focusing on things that like where I'm trying to figure out why something upsets me and then like um parse out how like an appropriate response to that instead of like turning it on me like where I'm like you know clearly my response to this is wrong no like I'm upset about something for a reason mm -hmm. but like I don't have the skills to figure out the least harmful way to respond to something without assistance 
And for me, a therapist is a good third party because like I can't talk about a lot of things with like my family for obvious reasons. Um, and of course, mm-hmm. that's a very privileged thing for me to be able to do is be like, hi, I can, here's $60. Right. Yeah. It's, you can't even, not everybody can even ask access therapy. Uh, Ruben, did you have any thoughts on like who else might benefit, benefit from psychiatric discourse and like the theory of mental illness in general? Oh, um, I have lots of thoughts. Like I, obviously a big one is that the drug industry, um, benefits from perpetuating these things and they, you know, pharmaceutical companies send sales reps out to doctor's offices and they push certain meds and, um, I mean, I'm, I'm coming from a place where I don't think any kind of healthcare should be for profit. So I don't know if I should say that first. And so um, I, I really think that that companies that are going to profit off of vulnerable mental states in people are, are going to benefit from keeping the system going. Absolutely. And that's a great segue to the second section, which is called critical scholarship on mental illness. So just running through this structure really quickly. Um, So the pharmaceutical corporations do have influence on the new categories of mental disorders that are documented in the DSM, and then the promotion of the drugs that they produce as treatments um, coincides that 69% of psychiatrists responsible for actually creating the DSM-5 have financial ties to big pharma, which is just kind of crazy, not nice. psychiatrists are themselves legitimized by the pharmaceutical industry. So there's sort of this push pull between the two, um, which in turn the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry then profits off of the prescriptions. So biomedical psychiatry or this idea that there is a quote unquote chemical imbalance in the brain operates under the assumption that there's a physiological cause to mental disorder that can then be treated by drugs. Um, but that theory of biopsychiatry, if you will, lacks scientific evidence. Um, there is another model. There's the psychosocial model, which in the field of public health, that's something that we study. It includes income, education, ethnicity, geography, class, um, gender, other sort of identities that can make somebody vulnerable to stressors, um, that then lead to, mental illness symptoms, quote unquote. Um, and, and those people often have less access to resources as well. So that theory kind of adds layers, um, to describe why, why these symptoms occur. Um, so while biomedical psychiatry relies on drugs as interventions, the psychosocial model then relies on more social and personal interventions such as therapy or like community health services, which I know that there's like mental health community health workers as well as um, group therapy, but um, it's really important to understand that those things are really hard to come by. That is, those are not really funded programs um, at a large scale anyway. Um, So 
in places like the U.S. with widening social inequality, um, that inequality negatively impacts well-being and vulnerable populations. So the the more impoverished classes, the working classes. Um, so the, uh, I think one statistic cited at the U.S. as compared to 11 other industrialized nations has the highest income inequality and the highest rate of mental illness. Correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but that's an interesting correlation. Um, Cohen does offer a criticism of Marxist analysis as well. So some Marxists, including I think mostly this group, speculate that capitalism does cause mental illness symptoms. Um, so suffering uh, in various forms that lead to um, distorted thinking. But there is no proof of causation for mental disorders in this model or the biomedical model at all. And we can we'll get into that more later. Um, so there's a few questions that I had down here. Um, I think I'm going to skip the one about drugs. I think we know that psychotropic drugs are kind of prescribed based on this very qualitative throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks model. Um, usually. <laughs> They, huh? I'm just laughing because I'm like, this is so acutely familiar. Yeah, like they just they'll prescribe you. They'll start with something like Prozac, and then that won't work, and then they'll just like go down like these decision trees that are just nonsense, and they're not related to any specific display of symptoms. Like you're just trying it out, no matter what the diagnosis is. It's kind yeah. of absurd when you say like I'm having this adverse rea reaction to this like I can't I literally can't have an orgasm on this medication and they're like oh well that's like that with all of them so it's that or nothing and you're like <laughs> so okay the one thing in my life that makes me not hate existence and I can't even do that like really and I just have to live with it and that is something that's good for your mental health right <laughs> It just always like just drove me up the wall because I'd be like, do you well how do you how do you square this hole? So maybe to that effect, um, maybe we can just kind of have an open discussion for a few minutes on like what how like what treatments have you tried or not necessarily treatments, but what has negatively or positively influenced your own mental health or not worked and you thought it might work? Um, medications do nothing for me other than like, um, say like Adderall or um, Focalin. Um, and that's mostly just for ADHD type symptoms. Um, which, and really, I feel like that's only because I have, like, specific obligations, like, with, like, timelines. Um, otherwise, I would just be like, meh. Um, but, like, antidepressants always just make me feel, like, just numb nothing. Like, the people that say that, like, antidepressants, like, totally change their lives and, like, all this stuff, like, I, it is like they're speaking a foreign language to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and then therapy has been hit or miss with me. My previous therapist was, 
it was just like I was talking, venting to a friend for like an hour and then paying for it. Um, and then my current therapist is a a trauma specialist. Like she did her externship at the YWCA. Um, so like seeing her and specifically working on getting through like a lot of childhood trauma um, and like even going with my mom and having her be like, um, you know, think of these things like from your mom's perspective, like a lot of that really helped my mental health just because like now I have a better relationship with my mom. Um, so like I have a little bit more resiliency as far as like having a community. Um, cause like I have a very large family, like my mom's side of the family is easily 200 people, um, like cousins, aunts, uncles, like that. So like being super isolated is really alienating for me, um, coming from such a large family. So like just being able to do like that one little thing and then figuring out that like, you know, my struggles with conforming to whatever were not a me problem. It was a, the society around me and the people wanting to conform to their expectations. It was a them problem, not me. That has been the biggest help for me. That seems like help, a very helpful way to to think to consider those impacts. I um, have myself looked back at different things. Um, I'm 50 now, and so I can cons am considering ways that things could have been done differently. Right, that's a normal part of getting to this age. And, and I've also discovered in the last several years that, that I'm anxious about things. And of course, there are lots of things to be anxious about, but I've also <laughs> been able to trace like where most of my life I've been anxious about things. And those seem to directly parallel problems that were going on. Like I've always had a good reason to be anxious. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, I was diagnosed as a teenager with bipolar disorder, but maybe those were just periods of high anxiety because of things that were going on. And now I have no way of knowing. Right. Um, but interventions were helpful with that, both therapeutic, like talk therapy, and um, that was helpful to developing coping skills. Uh, I've been on and off meds and some, sometimes they help and sometimes they don't. And, and I really agree with that kind of thrown at the wall analogy, <laughs> because it seems like doctors, you get doctors change and then they want to change your meds and it's like, okay, but maybe we shouldn't. Um, You're like, but why are we fixing what isn't broken? Like right, right. And, and so that's kind of frustrating. Um, most recently I've dealt with PTSD. Uh, which is, I think, a natural response to trauma. And I've been really grateful to have had medications that could help me focus on developing coping skills. So, so I could maybe not have nightmares for a while and I could learn how to cope with um, 
going back to sleep after nightmares. And then the hope would be that I wouldn't need the medication to not have the nightmares, Mm -hmm. but then they don't seem to want to take you off them. So that's really, I mean, it's beneficial, but sometimes it, I don't know. It's hard to, to get that to end. Sometimes you're like, I don't actually need this for like till the end of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I made a list as you all were talking, I think negative impacts. So first of all, antidepressants, um, they actually cause suicidal thoughts. And I have been on them since I was about 10 years old and I'm 34 now. And I recently finally got off my last antidepressant a couple months ago, and I just don't have them, those suicidal thoughts anymore. It's crazy because I thought that I was just like obsessively suicidal for 24 years. And it was just these antidepressants. Um, I think alcohol use, uh, a lot of people don't try to quit drinking, um, when they're feeling depressed and I totally understand cause I've been there too, but that's definitely had, once I stopped really drinking as much, um, my mental health improved a lot. Any sort of stress has had really negative consequences on my mental health. So financial stress, bad jobs, Um, I think we can all relate to that with, you know, bad bosses or toxic work environments, violence. Um, I know a lot of, I I think we're all organizers to to some extent or have been involved in struggles. So I know there's a lot there that can cause stress, um, any sort of relational issues, breakups or abuse or trauma, um, loneliness. Um, and isolation is especially a big one. And I know that social connectedness, um, is, is a big determinant of mental health, um, in general, uh, having intimacy, whether it's physical intimacy or emotional intimacy with people is really important, um, for your mental health. I think the, the benefits of therapy is when you have a good therapist, being able to reframe your thoughts and like change your behaviors, Bethany, as you were saying, I think that you know, some, there are some issues with therapy that we might get to in a little bit. Um, I think a couple things that are common, but people usually scoff at is exercise has been huge for me. Um, even just going on a walk every day, it, it is so helpful for my mental health, having a better diet. Um, and even certain supplements, especially like vitamin D and B supplements. Um, I think in the U S we have really terrible diets and we're missing nutrition. Um, and we have a lot of environmental pollution and, and, and all of these factors that influence our health. But, um, of course, uh, the, the common liberal dialogue is that, um, you know, you can't just take supplements and exercise and eat right. Um, you have to take these antidepressants, which, you know, it, it if that's what you think, that's what you think. Fine. But the, as far as what's helped me, um, my mental health has changed drastically just with regular diet and exercise. Um, I forgot that I've also recently started taking, um, like some mushroom supplements that have like herbal yeah. shit in it. Like, um, I've got a stress decompressed one and it's got reishi mushroom, lion's mane, skull cap, lemon balm, and ashwagandha. Um, and those are all supposed to be things to like help your brain just like be stressed because like your brain is still meat. It's still muscle. So like if you're stressed all the time, 
like it's activating very specific like portions of your brain um and I noticed whenever I first started taking this I had like a headache in like um the front part of my skull um and I guess that's where like a lot of like your stress hormones are produced mm-hmm. and I didn't really realize that until like until I started taking it and I was like god I've had this bad headache maybe I shouldn't take this anymore and then I was and one of my friends was like actually I don't think it might be helping but like it's like whenever you um massage a knot out of a muscle and like that muscle is like it feels better but it's sore so it's like the same kind of thing and I was like oh um and I've been on it a couple weeks and I I don't notice like a drastic difference but I notice like just like a a lowering of my feeling of stress yeah like I feel totally stress-free or anything it's not like a magic cure-all nothing like that it's just like I feel less like perpetually on edge all the time yeah that reminds me I ever felt like that on on (laughs) antidepressants sorry go ahead yeah no you're right you're right um I also take those types of supplements and and that also reminds me of the gut brain connection so most of your neurons are actually in your gut. Um, so taking a good probiotic helps me. Um, and then there's also, um, just, you know, like the, the magic mushrooms I have taken those. I don't (laughs) take them regularly, but they do help work through trauma. Um, they, they helped me Mm -hmm. incredibly. I have a friend that microdoses, um, and has microdosed for like decades. Um, and he's also autistic and like has some severe PTSD from a lot of like interpersonal, um, trauma. Um, and also just like, he was in a wreck whenever he was 11 and like broke like basically all his bones and his body. Um, and he's like, I, you know, I just microdose for like, say like a month at a time. And like, there's always just such like a drastic difference. Like as soon as I'm back on it, I can tell like. I just feel so much better and not even like that, like, you know, the world is like funny colors and like the the floor is snakes, but it's just like, I do not feel like I am ready to, excuse me, exit my skin at all times. Yeah. And he's always just like an antidepressants don't really do a whole lot for me the same way like we are like where he's just like sure it helps like in an immediate crisis but like long term like just makes me feel like crap <laughs> yeah don't quote me exactly on the statistics I know like the articles are coming out in the Guardian right now about the efficacy of antidepressants and this has actually been like serotonin theory has been debunked for many many years in the scientific community but for some reason we're still puffing this shit out Um, but I think that the statistic is like, um, antidepressants do just about as well as placebo in general, but, um, especially over the course of the, like, I think they work like maybe 40% of the time. Um, but over a course of a year or longer, that number decreases drastically, um, to the effect that Mm -hmm. they just like stop working, but then you're on them forever. Um, but I think the next two sections are like the meat and potatoes. So I'm going to talk for a bit. Sorry. I have like a lot of, 
points. Um, so the next section is deconstructing the science of psychiatry. Um, so psych the first point is uh, psychiatric leaders see psychiatry like as having made all of this progress. So it went from the days of, um, oh, this mental illness is a genetic curse and we're going to send you to an asylum and we're the people administering the weird asylum. And then, you know, now you can take an antidepressant, you can take a pill because all of these... Um, illnesses have distinct neural patterns and we can medicalize it and then you're cured. Um, but no biological sign, no biomarker has ever been found for mental disorders, at least, um, except in, you know, very specific cases. Um, there's no known etiology, which is like a causal pathway or the cause of mental disorders. Um, at least from a physical standpoint, there's no, real consistent definition of a mental mental disorder as we have talked about um and again brings up this point that psychiatry can't distinguish mentally healthy from mentally ill um there's evidence i think just from a critical lens but it just in general that mental disorders reflect the norms and values of the wider society so some examples that um coincided, uh, and this might be a little triggering, um, is masturbatory insanity. Drapetomania, which I looked up, is the mental illness of fleeing slavery. So people were really like, slavery is so great. Why would anybody run away from this? That's a mental disorder. Hysteria, which I think we uh, all are all aware is basically the mental illness of being a woman with feelings and uh, homosexuality, uh, which would remain a mental disorder in the DSM until there was increasing social pressure from protests and then people internal to the American Psychiatric Association um, that they just held a vote and then they removed it. So I think that that anecdote shows that there's really no, there was no biological basis for calling homosexuality a mental disorder. It was just like, we don't like that. So, and then once people were like, okay, fine, we're going to like deal with that and like accept it as a thing. Um, they just took it out of the DSM. Like that's all. Um, so page 12, uh, I just kind of wanted to read directly. Um, so sorry, this is just going to be a lot of talking. So the study that had most direct impact on the psychiatric profession um, was Rosenhan's classic research on being sane and insane places, which found that psychiatrists couldn't distinguish between real and pseudo patients. Um, pseudo patients were admitted to um, the hospital and then given a psychotic label and all the subsequent behavior of the researchers, including note-taking was labeled by staff as further symptoms of their disorder. So there's confirmation bias. Um, this research was a culmination of earlier studies on labeling and mental illness. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, his research found that psychiatrists, psychiatrists made arbitrary and subjective decisions on those diagnosed or designated as mentally ill, sometimes retaining people in institutions, even when there was no evidence to support such a decision. Psychiatrists relied on a common sense set of beliefs and practices rather than observable scientific evidence. 
Um, the conclusion was that labeling of a person with a mental illness was contingent on violation of social norms by low status rule breakers who are judged by higher status agents of social control. And in this case, it was the psychiatric profession. Thus, according to these studies, the nature of mental illness is not a fixed object of medical study, but rather a form of social deviance, a moral marker of social infarction by the powerful inflicted on the powerless. The situation is summated in Becker's uh, general theory of social deviance, which stated that deviance is not a quality of the act the person commits, but rather a consequence of the application by others of rules and sanctions to an offender. The deviant is one to whom that label has successfully been applied. Deviant behavior is behavior that people label that way. So basically it's all based on labels of social, social deviance and there's sort of this conf confirmation bias once you get into the system. Um, so psychiatry uses a classification system of qualitative descriptions of disorders that are recorded in the DSM. Um, and then we go into talking about reliability. So reliability is when a test or a classification will repeatedly return the same result despite who's administering the test um, given the same condition. So the same subject or the same presentation of criteria. Um, but psychiatry lacks reliability. Um, diagnostic so given some history of the DSM, basically diagnostic categories in the DSM one and two lacked reliability or diagnostic consistency, except for in specific cases of um, mental deficiency, organic brain syndrome and alcoholism. So basically they just wrote this book. There was no like study or like scientific reliability behind all of these classifications. It was just describing people. Um, and the reliability was fair in cases of psychosis and schizophrenia, which makes sense because there are sort of distinct symptoms in psychosis. The DSM-3 um, was kind of touted as having a revolutionary level of reliability, um, but later evidence kind of debunked that. <laughs> it showed it was blatantly rigged to achieve that sort of reliability. <laughs> And in the 90s, uh, someone did a study to, that showed there was actually not even, despite the rigging, there was actually no improvement whatsoever. Um, then the DSM-4 was like, okay, we'll just like loosen the criteria. Uh, and then by the DSM-5, they just kind of gave up on it. <laughs> but even if there was reliability and they were to solve for this, there was that doesn't mean that, that it's valid. So validity is how well any test measures what it's supposed to measure, like if it's even real. So an example would be like a thermometer is a reliable test to detect a fever, um, but it's not a valid test to detect something like COVID, um, which you would need a COVID test for. Uh, the National mm -hmm. Institute of Mental Health, this blew my mind. So the NIMH actually said that categories of mental disorder lack validity and they're just not gonna use those categories anymore when they do research. <laughs> so um, since no studies have established validity, psychiatry has a moral and political nature rather than a medical one. That's a conclusion that Cohen's making, um, which I agree with. And health is whatever is considered normal within a given time and place in society. So that's a lot of talking, um, but 
let's so when it so whenever I started laughing, all I can think of is just the psychiatric portion or really any part of the mental health field is just a bunch of raccoons in a trench coat mm-hmm. with a person mask on. Just like, hey, uh, so we got drugs. Drugs. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Cool, cool. That was all. Yeah, yeah. So I know we've touched on a lot here. Um, I think one question, like the first question I had is like, how do people react to criticism of psychiatry? Like despite all this being true and like documented in scientific studies, how do how do people react um, when you bring up like any sort of like, hey, antidepressants might not be the answer <laughs> or, you know, I have questions about psychiatry as a whole. So there is a study that recently came out about um, medical, the medical profession in general, like in capitalist society and basically how it meets all of the criteria for a religion slash cult. Um, And that tracks with my experiences as a chronically ill person. And that is the kind of feeling that I get from people whenever I present any kind of critique about psychiatry in general or anything. And I'm like, hey, you know, maybe it's not like you, maybe it's our society. And like, I don't think antidepressants are going to help So maybe organize. And like, it just turns into, you know, a, um, like a, mob of you know this is ableist blah, blah, blah. and it's like no I'm just like I'm also a disabled person and person that struggles with their meat space um but like how how do you not see like all these problems and like think that like hmm, maybe everybody being on drugs if everybody has to be on drugs maybe it's not the people right um and that has been and that has been like and I have been that person in the past like and that but that has been how I have um been approached in like say the last year or so about it so that's fun yeah and I think some of that is also with like the the increasing polarization of our society like as it is now like just how like especially like since COVID um like everybody is just like so just eternally on edge and just like ready to just like snap at like everything mm-hmm. there is no attempt to understand or no attempt at solidarity it's just fuck you fuck yours you know fuck off into the sun like no matter what even if somebody is like trying to like have a conversation with you in good faith yeah that's absolutely true I've had to block like three people from Facebook for even just like like sharing my own experiences with antidepressants and like it's so weird because like the second that you say hey this antidepressant thing um science actually shows that it's not that great of a treatment like you can certainly try it out but like, 
it had CBT therapy, ha, like cognitive behavioral therapy has proven to be more effective than antidepressants. So why not try that first? Why not try not drinking first? Why not try these other like things that are not going to make it so you can't have an orgasm or like make you feel. I, for, I forgot that uh, DBT, DBT has been the biggest thing for me. Um, in addition to like my therapist, but she bought me a um, workbook from like Amazon or something. It is um, dialectical behavior therapy for neurodivergent people. So it's like a like, mm, think 60 or 80 page workbook of just like things that you can go through and do like physically do um and then like lists of things to go through and like be like okay so like this is what I need here's the solution like it's like actual concrete things um but then there's like also like science behind it like um there's a section on the mammalian diving reflex so like, you know how like in movies, whenever you see somebody that's upset and they go and splash their face with cold water. Um, I never understood why people did that until I read this workbook and they're inducing the mammalian diving reflex and it helps lower your stress level. Like it tells your brain, like, stop it, stop it. You're safe. Mm-hmm. Like chill out. <laughs> um, but I never understood why people did it. And I just thought like it was like this super weird thing that they always included in movies. Um, so that has also been super helpful for me. Yeah, it's just, there, there are a lot of things to try first that aren't going to make you suicidal or, like, you know, whatever antidepressant, whatever effect that antidepressants have on you, but people like guard these, like you're insulting their very identity. If you just say anything about it, it's for me, I think mm-hmm. it's kind of weird. Um, it's like you insulted their mammal and they're like, how dare you? My mammal makes the best, best peach cobbler. Rude. It's like, uh, uh, okay. I definitely want to get to this question. Um, so how okay. is psychiatry similar and different to the criminal justice system? Oh, mm. it's very similar in that like everything is very punitive. Like I was always called like, I was always like that little weird kid, you know? Um, but then now that I'm older, I have a late, have a word for that and that's autism. But whenever people find out that I am autistic, like they start just like being like, oh, well, you don't really seem like you're one of those or like they'll start treating me differently. So it's like that same kind of thing where it's like, you know, you have like, you can be weird and like, it's fine. But then as soon as you have a word for why you're perceived as weird or a word for why you're struggling with whatever, then suddenly you're just like this outcast and like you've got like all this punitive shit against you and just like, not even like necessarily in the institution, but like just within like your community. I think that's a big part of why a lot of people are like, well, I, you know, I'd like to go to a therapist, but I'm just afraid they'll take away my guns. And you're like, um, why would a therapist take, take away your gun? <laughs> like, I have questions. I, I agree with 
that and I want to add that I think once you're in the system you're in the system like once you have a diagnosis then everything tends to fall back on that diagnosis whether or not circumstances in your life change um situations change whatever mm -hmm. well and especially like, now with the the onset of digital records and no paper records you know like mm -hmm. that your whole digital file follows you everywhere right so unless you lie and say that i haven't seen anybody in 10 years um you're gonna have something on there if you've ever yeah. been like uh i'm a little sad right now yeah i think that the big key here is they they're both systems to control social deviants that have like a profit mechanism so mm -hmm. the profit mechanism and criminal justice quote unquote is the prison industrial complex where you basically have legalized repackaged slave labor and then um in the psychiatric system the profit mechanism is um the drugs um i think that it also is interesting in the types of like the way that people are funneled into either of these systems. So you can look at it from a couple different angles. So it's like, if you have committed a violent act or have broken a rule of some sort, um, including like stealing or whatever, where you're like attacking capital, you might be put into the criminal justice system. But um, if you have maybe or maybe not done those things but just made people pretty uncomfortable um and they can't charge you with something either because a psychologist has you like have a good lawyer and a psychologist has said that it's because you have this mental illness or like whatever like if you have access to certain resources then you are funneled into the psychiatric system. Or if it's like, you're not actually like breaking a rule, you're just like making people uncomfortable. Um, so I think that's, uh, those are just a couple other points there. Um, and then the last section was talking about the urgency for Marxist theory. So um, the points made here are, there's a lack of sustained critical engagement among scholars of psychiatry, including a lack of contextualization within capitalist structures and historical materialism. So, and what I mean by that is like, there's not an analysis of the history of why we even have the system today and how it was built and how that impacts the world and interacts with the world and other systems. Um, Psychiatry's, um, this is a quote from the book, psychiatry's priorities and practices are fundamentally shaped by the goals of capitalism, again, with the social control and the profit motives. Um, and, and I think, oh, one thing we didn't touch on earlier um, is like who benefits from psychiatry and like a big point of it is making it so that you can cope well enough to get through your work day and be like a complacent worker without starting shit basically um and then another quote is side professionals are responsible for facilitating maximization of profit for the ruling class uh while individualizing the social and economic conditions of the workers which i think sums it up pretty well um 
so some questions here is like, what types of behavior are mental health professionals encouraging given their level of influence? Um, and, and why are they encouraging that type of behavior? Uh, basically make, they want everybody to just be a robot, like go along with whatever, you know, the ruling class says, like, just literally just be like, okay, yes. Um, you know, like, this is fine. Everything is fine. You know, like I will comply with whatever the police and my boss and my landlord says. And if like, I don't, then that's, that's on me. You know, I could have just gone and gotten a better job. I could have just fought the police in court rather than um, daring to breathe. Yeah, there's like a certain level of managing reactivity. And of course, being a a communist, right? You want to be a good participant in your social groups, right? Like you don't want to be highly reactive and like reactionary, but um, it's also like a lot of emotional regulation. So that kind of, which I think is a good thing. Like these aren't objectively bad things always, but it, it is they're encouraging that emotional regulation within the context. I feel like they encourage it to, right. I think they encourage it to an unhealthy degree. Like there's a difference between like controlling your emotions and your responses to things within a social group and, you know, like within an organization and whatever, and then completely just becoming like a robot so that, you know, you're not upset by, like your hours being cut at work or your boss berating you in front of coworkers or, you know, your boss like talking down to you. Like these are things that are like inherently going to be upsetting and people are going to have feelings about them and heaven forbid, you know, you be upset about it. Like um, last year I got into it with my boss whenever I asked, for an accommodation for COVID. Um, and she was like, and like, I, I didn't have an attitude. I think she perceived me to have an attitude, but she was immediately like, okay, so this attitude, it ends whenever we leave this room. Is that clear? And I just like snapped and just started crying because if I didn't start crying, then I was going to start screaming at her. Um, because like, being told that I have an attitude for expressing my opinion and like saying like, Hey, this is like not great or anything has always resulted in me being told that I have an attitude. And I'm like, I, I don't have an attitude. If I had an attitude, you would know, believe me. Like <laughs> it will be so apparent. Um, but like, I feel like that's what psychiatry wants you to do is where it's just like, you know, just go along with whatever the superior says to do. So if it's, you know, you got to go out and do 10 things that are unethical. Well, if you have feelings about this unethical thing, tough shit. Mm-hmm. I think another one is individualism with the boundaries and everything. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a person, I really do need to work on boundaries, <laughs> but at the same time, like, I'll, I guess like using some examples, I was in a very 
horrible interpersonal scenario where like I had let a friend stay with me because they were going through some shit and that person kind of coerced me into a monogamous domestic partnership, which is not some like, it's not something that you can just immediately do. And like, you know, there was a lot of like a sort of emotionally abusive behaviors happening. And I would talk to like my, my therapist about that. And yes, she did help me like set boundaries and get out of that situation to an extent. But I think one of the points that really frustrated me, and I'm just using this as an example, but I think like throughout my history and therapy, like this has been a common theme. Like one thing that really frustrated me is like, you know, she's talking about me and me setting boundaries and how, you know, his behavior is bad and all of this. Um, and yeah, I get that. He's like being a piece of shit to me right now. Like he's being mean to me and like manipulating me and stuff, but I still care about him and care about his situation. Like his situation hasn't gone away and he has, he needs a lot of assistance to heal and grow himself. And like, I love him, even if it's from a revolutionary love sort of perspective where I love all people, but I still care about him. And it wasn't like every time I would bring this up, like, well, he needs, you know, insurance. He needs to go to the doctor. He needs like to do all these things. And, you know, she's like, that's not your problem. And it is like, it is my problem because he exists in my community and my society. Like I still care for him. That's why, like, that's why I brought him into the house in the first place. Yeah, I have this problem too with therapy um, where like, it's where I always feel like I am, um, I feel like I'm not being um, harsh enough with people in my life because I'm trying to meet them where they are and like, you know, understand them as a full human rather than just like, being like, well, you hurt me and you have upset me. And so you can just fuck off for all time. And like, you know, whatever you've got to do, you can figure it out, but you can't figure it out with me. Like, just please fuck off into the sun. And like, it feels very, um, feels very contrary to my ethics and morals to do that um but I always feel like I'm being pulled like that and I'm like "Mm, mm, no not not me (laughs) I'm not like I I have done that once in my life and I felt terrible um but that was a there was there were extenuating circumstances there where it was like I can't let you just like continue um as is for however long it takes you to get your shit together because like you are actively doing shit that was harmful and will not stop yeah there's a certain point we have to be dialectical about it in our own thinking and and from a hegelian perspective or not a hegelian i guess from a more marxist perspective than like whatever the fuck dialectical what is the dialectics that in dbt is that based off of Buddhism I, I don't know I but, like um, historical materialism so but like it's, it's Hegelian but yeah yeah so like um 
the yeah the individualism you're talking like there's a certain level of bridge burning or social separation that's encouraged like I know that I have like expressed frustration to my like my current therapist is good but like my previous one I would be like I feel alone and I feel like I don't have community and like people you know aren't you know reaching out to me in the same way I would reach out to them and that makes me sad and like um you know then she also like encouraged not only like not talking to those people anymore but like social climbing to a certain extent well you just need to hang out with better people and it's like I live in the United States this is just how things are I don't know well and also like better people like yeah I hate that whole thing like nobody's better than anybody like we're all just regular fucking humans like in the same way, I hate it in the same way that I hate whenever people call um, like Nazis and whatever monsters. I'm like, no, they're actually a full human. Like with all the same everything, they're not a monster. They're just a terrible person with terrible ideals. Please stop calling them a monster because it dehumanizes them and it then excuses their behavior because you have now dehumanized them. So, and like it, like it just grinds my gears. I totally agree. Uh, Rune, did you have any thoughts? Um, I just think there's generally a lot of, of you're not supposed to feel things. And that's just kind of a, a wrapping up reflection is, <clears throat> I think generally speaking, you're not supposed to feel things and you're supposed to feel bad if you feel things and that's supposed to somehow motivate you. And if it doesn't, then you can be numbed until mm-hmm. you don't feel your feelings. Yeah. So if you're like, you know, I have, I'm hurt by this. Like they're just like, well, just go and buy some uh go buy some face products you know do some self-care right yeah and like every time time that you're like upset isn't like you abusing someone either (laughs) right like just because you're crying or maybe even raising your voice like sure you don't want to do that a lot but like we're human beings like it's not like you being upset and having those sort of natural like reactions where you're like dry like you're heaving and you're crying and you're maybe yelling into the abyss or like whatever doesn't mean like you're having a whole breakdown or like you're you you're psychotic or like you're abusive it's like you're upset (laughs) um but okay so in the interest of time I think my next point was like what types of people become mental health professionals and where do they get their ideas just like in the interest of time quickly um I think it's people that have access usually to higher education um sometimes that means um you know it doesn't necessarily mean you come from a certain class background but in general the class nature is um you know working class or upper middle class or middle class or even rich people become mental health professionals especially coming through like as a therapist, you're spending a ton of money on education for not a very high starting salary. Um, Psychiatrists have to go to medical school, which takes a lot of time and money and energy. Um, 
And so they get their ideas through this institution um, instead of the struggle of, you know, being in poverty or the struggle of certain, you know, traumatic situations. Now, not to say like everyone to a certain extent has trauma and a lot of people get into these fields because of it. And so not to say that nobody has ever been poor that is a mental health professional or has been through trauma, just like in general, you're getting a pretty petty bougie to like bourgeoisie sort of line of thinking from mental health professionals, just based on our education system. Um, but the last question is, can psychiatry or psychology be saved from a Marxist perspective? Like as a profession? In a capitalist society or in post-capitalist society? Uh, well, this is, so I think what Cohen was saying is um, that we kind of have to just demolish this entire system and reimagine something new. Um, if it, I guess in socialism or like if we wanted to really revolutionize psychiatry in general um, because it is so tainted by this bullshit ideology and has such strong ties to capital. Um, so I'm kind of like asking for your reactions to his thoughts on that. I think there could be some aspects, but I think the vast majority of things would inevitably just fall apart. Like, because how many people are depressed right now just because they like have to work two jobs and still can't pay their bills? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how many people are out here like being raging fucking assholes to people because same thing? Um, you know, like so many of these things are responses to the contradictions within capitalist society. So I don't know that all of it, all of all of psychiatry will be a hundred percent required. I think there will be some required just because like we're gonna have a few generations of people like highly traumatized. Mm -hmm. You need somebody to help you like process that trauma like process it in a healthy way rather than continuing the cycle. Um, but like with the level of environmental collapse that we are looking at, like I, I cannot see a future where um, humanity still exists, capitalism doesn't exist um, and psychiatry is as it is. Maroon, what do you think? I. <clears throat> I think that, that there are some aspects, there are some interventions that can be helpful um, in temporary ways. And so I'm not really sure what the answer to this question is yet. Um, That's, that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, some things actually are helpful. That doesn't mean there's science as it's been practiced can demonstrate that, right? I know that when I meditate, it slows down my heart rate and I calm down. Um, like that's something I've learned to do that doesn't really cost or profit anybody, but that's a technique that, that I've learned to do through therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there are helpful interventions that would, 
would be good to persist. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a way it can be restructured. Uh, I, I just don't know. Yeah, I get what Cohen's saying, but I agree with you all too. I think that especially within the therapy aspect of the side professions, I think there are helpful things. And I think some of the medications are helpful to an extent. Um, it's just, But I, I also understand Cohen's point that this system was created as a form of like social and political control. Um, I would imagine like in the future in socialism, we would have a completely reimagined idea of mental health in general. And I think that you know, perhaps like some of these skills, like emotion regulation and like DBT skills and CBT skills and meditation and social skills in general, that would be incorporated into like our education and upbringing and how we are indoctrinated in society. And all of that would be part of our lives. And we will kind of use those skills on a day-to-day basis. And I think some of these interventions would be reimagined, but, um, I, I do agree that it might not be our problem to solve today. <laughs> Any like, yeah, it's, no, I agree with you there. Like it's, uh, it's one of those problems that's like, yeah, it's a problem and will need to be dealt with, but it's not like the most dire problem that we need to deal with this moment. Dope. Well, I think that was pretty good for discussion. <laughs> I do have to jet like immediately, but like. <laughs>